Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 46, Polythene Pam, to talk more about polymers both organic and inorganic developed in the 1930s and 1940s. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Supporters of this podcast can download a supplemental sheet with diagrams of the various molecules I describe in this episode. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Our introduction to the age of polymers was just a start with nylon, teflon, bakelite, and synthetic rubbers. There were a host of other polymeric materials being developed in the 1930s and 1940s. Let's start with French scientist Henri Regnault. In 1835, he left vinyl chloride gas in a flask in the sun and later discovered a white solid in the flask. What to do with this unknown material, Regnault had no idea, so he ignored it. Then, the German organic chemist, Eugen Baumann, in 1872, did precisely the same thing. I read Baumann's obituary, published in 1897, and while he did some interesting chemical and biochemical research, this white substance was not mentioned. By 1913, however, another German chemist, Fritz Klatte came up with a reasonable production method for this white stuff, now called polyvinyl chloride, or PVC, and he patented it, but it still never caught on because it was brittle. But then, in the 1920s, with worries about natural rubber rising, the B.F. Goodrich Company hired chemical engineer Waldo Simon who worked on how to coat metal with protective rubber. He reinvented this polyvinyl chloride as a substitute for rubber, but it wasn't flexible, required for wiring. It was stiff and solid at room temperature. He tried heating PVC in a solvent with a raised boiling temperature and got an elastic jelly when it cooled, but didn't stick to metal. Then he added a plasticizer to make the material plastic, that is, moldable, and PVC worked. Originally, PVC was used for soles on shoes, coatings for handles of tools, and on wire. PVC is cheap to make, and is also colloquially called vinyl. After World War II, production of PVC shot up, and multiple companies were fabricating it, now with all sorts of uses, from construction such as doors and windows, to bottles, credit cards, plumbing, fake leather, inflatable balls and toys, and even those retro two-sided black discs called records, starting around 1930. So-called vinyl is the second biggest plastic made today. As with polyvinyl chloride, polyethylene, or polythene, in the UK, was first synthesized accidentally in the 19th century, 
in this case in 1898, by German chemist Hans von Pechmann, who had discovered and was researching the molecule diazomethane, CH2N2, a toxic and explosive yellow gas. A couple of years later, Eugen Bamberger and Friedrich Tschirner determined that the substance was a polymer, whatever that really meant in those days, and they called it polymethylene. Of course, diazomethane is such a nasty compound that nobody wanted to mess with it in industrial situations, so the polymer was shelved. The British chemists Eric Fawcett and Reginald Gibson rediscovered polyethylene accidentally in 1933 at the ICI company using a different synthetic technique. They squeezed ethylene gas and benzaldehyde under several atmospheres of pressure, but there was a trace of oxygen that started the polymerization. Therefore, their success was hard to reproduce. It took a couple of years of further research at ICI before the method was commercially reproducible, and it made what we now call low density polyethylene, or LDPE, by 1939. Its electromagnetic properties were suitable for insulation of secret military grade coaxial cables during World War II. LDPE is a polymer that's heavily branched rather than with linear chains of atoms. But LDPE was difficult to synthesize because of the high pressures involved. Meanwhile, Phillips Petroleum was interested in finding commercial products for natural gas, which contains polypropylene and ethylene gases. After World War II, they wanted to expand their product lines for gasoline. J. Paul Hogan and Robert Banks were assigned to this project, and they investigated catalysts to help speed the process of conversion along. By June 1951, they tried a nickel oxide catalyst doped with some chromium oxide. They expected to get a number of smaller hydrocarbons from propane run through a pipe lined with this alleged catalyst. Banks ran out of the laboratory to Hogan, saying, Hey, we've got something new coming in our kettle that we've never seen before. The chromium oxide helped create some kind of solid white substance, which they found was crystalline polypropylene. Immediately, the duo, with support from management, turned to plastics. They were able to commercially develop a high density polypropylene, or HDPE, that was much stiffer, harder, and heat resistant. Phillips began selling HDPE under the trade name Marlex in 1954, but it was not a success, at least partly because the product was not consistent in quality. Until the 1950s craze for hula hoops turned HDPE production around in 1957, and Marlex was selling out overnight to make hula hoops. Later, a variety of other tubing became popular. And now it's made into gasoline canisters, chairs, notebooks, landfill liners, trash bags, tanks, backboards for basketball hoops, and even water bottles. Almost simultaneously, a German chemist named Carl Ziegler was also researching how to make polyethylene more efficiently. Ziegler was a chemist at the Max Planck Institute for Coal Research. 
So there was a lot of ethylene gas available from coal products. He wanted to synthesize a high molecular weight polymer, but could only get one butene, a four carbon molecule made of two ethylene molecules. After some head scratching and more experiments, he and his team found that zirconium, chromium, and most of all, titanium salts, all catalysts, promoted growth of a polymer. Ziegler told the Montecatini Company in Italy about this discovery in 1952. One of their consultants was Giulio Natta. Natta was able to refine Ziegler's procedure to get particular isomers of polypropylene from propylene gas rather than ethylene. Their joint work and results came to be called Ziegler Natta catalysts. And they jointly received the Chemistry Nobel Prize in 1963. Almost simultaneously, around 1950, at Standard Oil Company of Indiana, Alex Zletz found that polyethylene could be made from molybdenum catalysts sitting on aluminum oxide. If you were listening closely to these parallel stories, the Ziegler-Natta, Zletz, and the Phillips work. You might recognize a problem. All were attempted to be patented in the USA, and all work on very similar principles. And none independently knew of the other efforts. To try to determine who had priority on catalytic synthesis of polyethylene, the U.S. Patent Office declared what's called interference in 1958, meaning there appear to be overlapping claims. The determination process took over two decades, but eventually determined that Hogan and Banks had priority in 1983. Another plastic invented around this time in 1933 was polymethyl methacrylate. By British chemists Roland Hill and John Crawford, who were at ICI, it is often called acrylic, but ICA trademarked the name as Perspex. Simultaneously, the German chemist Otto Rühm, who founded the company Rühm and Haas, was attempting to make a safety glass that wouldn't shatter and injure people. To do this, he tried to polymerize the monomer methyl methacrylate. In between two sheets of glass, but the polymer fell away from the glass as a clear sheet, and Rum patented the product as plexiglass. First commercialized in the late 1930s, World War II saw use of this acrylic as windscreens and submarine turrets, among other military uses. We've talked about famous organic polymers so far, but what about inorganic polymers? We turn to a polymer based on silicon, the element that sits right below carbon in the periodic table. Silicon itself, a common element on Earth, was first found by Berzelius in 1824. It took nearly four decades before the first organosilicon compound. Was discovered by Charles Friedel and James Crafts. That is a compound bonding silicon to carbon atoms. That is, if we ignore silicon carbide, which is generally viewed as inorganic, this was tetraethylsilane 
or four ethyl groups attached to a central silicon atom. In 1871, German chemist Albert Ladenburg found that when he reacted diethyl diethoxysilane in dilute acid, he found some kind of viscous oil that survives up to a high temperature and refuses to freeze even as low as minus 15 degrees Celsius. But real understanding of what this silicon based compound was waited till English chemist Frederick Kipping's work. Kipping worked with silicon compounds in the early 1900s, and he realized that structurally they had something in common with organic ketone compounds. In particular, they had one silicon atom, one oxygen atom, and two methyl groups, which mirrors ketones with one carbon atom. One oxygen atom and two hydrocarbon groups. Thus, he called these silicon compounds silicones to mirror the name ketones. In 1933, Corning Glass charged James Hyde to look into silicones to insulate motors and generators that operate at high temperatures. His research was successful, and a partnership between Corning and Dow Chemical. Started marketing silicones in 1942. By the early 1930s, these silicones were understood to be true polymers with a repeating series of silicon oxygen bonds as the chain. Silicon, like carbon, can have a valence of four, so the extra two bonds on the silicon are some kind of hydrocarbon, say a methyl, ethyl, or phenyl group. A phenyl group is a benzene ring. I should note the terminology here. Silicon is the element. Silicone with an e at the end is the organosilicon compound. And technically, the best name to characterize these compounds is siloxane, but we are stuck with Kipping's usage since he invented it. As to the element silicon, we shall have more to say about it as the 20th century moves forward into the computer age. The properties of these silicone compounds can be tailored based on the molecular structure. You can change the SiO chain lengths. You can adjust the hydrocarbon side groups. You can even change crosslinking, which is how parallel chains link from one chain to the next. In this way, you can get a gel-like silicone, a rubbery one, or even a hard plasticky silicone. Some resins are linked molecularly in a checkerboard pattern to become rigid. Why have silicones proven so valuable, though? They conduct heat and electricity poorly, so they can act as an insulator. They tend to be fairly inert chemically and to ultraviolet light, so are useful in a variety of environments. They generally are not toxic, so are safe for people to handle. They are thermally stable over a wide temperature range, from Antarctic winters to boiling hot water and beyond. They repel water and can act as a sealant. They stick to certain materials but not others. They don't let bacteria grow well. With all these characteristics, they can be used as sealing caulking in the construction industry and for automotive gaskets and trim. Brake lubricant is often silicone-based. Perhaps you have used silicone cutting boards, ice cube trays, and basting brushes in the kitchen. 
many flexible contact lenses are made with silicones. In the early 1940s, several different inventors claimed to have simultaneously invented the goop called Silly Putty, which was finally marketed commercially around 1950. It is mostly a silicone, but with additives to keep its shape and color. Finally, in 1970, the 3M company came up with a temporary sticky note, the post-it note using a silicone-based adhesive. Polystyrene is yet another of our modern polymers that was mischaracterized and ignored in the 19th century. This polymer was first found in 1839 by a Berlin pharmacist, Eduard Simon, after he distilled the sap from the sweet gum tree into an oil he named Styrol. After it sat in a jar for a few days, it thickened into a gel Simon called Styrol Oxide because he thought the oil combined with oxygen from the air. In 1845, Jamaican-Irish chemist John Blythe, with our buddy August von Hoffmann, determined that the gel was also formed without oxygen, so Simone's idea was shot down. Blythe and Hoffmann called it instead metal styrol. Over two decades later, Berthelot revisited this styrol reaction and correctly assigned it to a polymerization, though precisely what that meant was still argued about for another 80 years. The monomer itself, styrene, is a benzene ring with a two-carbon chain hanging off. By Staudinger's time in the 1920s, chemists finally realized that a chain reaction of styrene polymerized the mess into polystyrene. The polymer structure is a carbon chain with benzene rings hanging off. The first company to commercialize polystyrene was the German firm Badische Anilin und Sodafabrik, BASF, in 1931. Their process started with a reactor vessel, after which the polymer was extruded through a heated pipe and a dicer, making polystyrene pellets. During World War II, the American chemist Otis McIntyre working for Dow Chemical Company, again wanted a rubber substitute as an insulator. He ran an experiment combining styrene monomer with isobutylene. He saw tiny isobutylene bubbles appear inside the styrene. The result was an expanded polystyrene 30 times less dense than regular solid polystyrene. It was thermally and water-resistant, and it floated on water. It was dubbed styrofoam and patented in 1944. So, what is polystyrene used for? Solid polystyrene is now made into disposable forks and knives, razors, CD cases, plastic models you can build and paint. For the electrical engineers among you, in thin sheets, it used to be incorporated into capacitors as the dielectric, the spacer between the metal plates. Polystyrene foam is a great insulator. Expanded polystyrene is used for food containers, building insulation, packing material, and even bicycle and motorcycle helmets. The first styrofoam coffee cup was sold in 1960 by the firm Dart Container.
Back in episode 40, I mentioned that DuPont discovered polyester, but got distracted by the success of nylon. John Winfield, a British chemist with James Dixon, continued along DuPont's research in 1939, and by 1941 invented polyethylene terephthalate, or PET for short. They then, with W.K. Bertwistle and C.G. Ritchie, invented the first polyester fiber, naming it terylene, and manufactured by ICI. Textile manufacturers considered it stronger than nylon. DuPont finally got back into the game and began making a similar material, Dacron. DuPont bought the American rights to terylene and started commercializing it as Dacron in 1950. They marketed it as a textile that you could wear for 68 days straight with no wrinkling. Beyond fibers, polyester can be manufactured into films, such as mylar, starting in 1952. Magnetic recording tape is generally made from polyester films. Beverage bottles are also made from polyester. In our next episode, we discuss spectroscopy, when we zap a sample with some kind of light and see how it responds. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.